Good morning. Uh, you can turn with me to Judges, Judges chapter 13. Uh, we have been uh, in a consecutive series going through uh, the, the Old Testament, and uh, we're currently in the book of Judges. Uh, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that we've taken a break from that as we've had some visiting speakers, and um, so we've had a break from the book of Judges, but we're going back. Last time... Uh, last time we were in the book of Judges, it was uh, with Brother Brian Skelton, and he had begun the life of Samson in Judges 13. Uh, today, what we intend to do is to consider uh, the second half of the life of Samson, but I'm going to kind of go back and, and take some of the first half because it all flows together, of course. It's all uh, Samson's story, you could say. Uh, I just want to make a, an opening comment before we think about Samson, I want to make a couple just brief comments regarding the children of Israel as a whole. Okay, Of course, Samson was an Israelite, um, but we know that there is this, and we've been reminded of it time and time again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we remember that there's this sad cycle going on in Judges, and, uh, and it looks something like this. I just borrowed this from Brother Dave Bosworth. He had put this up a few weeks ago. Uh, the cycle in Judges looks something like this. You could, you could use different terms, but basically the people had a time of rest. Then they began uh, in a rebellion toward the Lord. Uh, it would be followed by a time of retribution where the Lord God would use other nations around to judge his people, uh, which would lead to a time of repentance usually, although in Samson's case, in this story, we don't, uh, read in specific of the people repenting, even though the Lord begins deliverance. But the general cycle is like this. Rest, rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue. When they cried out to the Lord, the Lord would come and deliver them, by, usually by a judge. Uh, and then they would be back into a time of rest again. But unfortunately, they kept repeating the cycle. Every time God would bring them out of a time of, of bondage, uh, by the hand of a judge, uh, they found their way back into that same place again. They would leave uh, the Lord and they would follow after other gods. It's just, I just want to highlight that term for a minute. If you would, just for one minute, look at Judges chapter 2. This term caught my eye because it's a term that we use so uh, often in our culture today. Judges 2 and verse 12 says this, it says, They, that's the Israelites, forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. They followed other gods. You hear that term a lot in today's culture, don't you? Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. A lot of times we use the term uh, when we say things like, uh, do you follow this TV show? Or do you follow sports? It's an interesting term. We have to be careful, don't we? Because the children of Israel followed after other gods. First of all, they were following something they ought not follow. But the thing that they followed, they followed right into idolatry. Some of the things that are out there today, some of the ways we might use the term, uh, maybe some of them are in and of themselves not sinful. Do you follow this or do you follow that? Do you follow politics? Do you follow Wall Street? Uh, you know, do you follow sports? Do you follow movies? 
Uh, do you follow the stock market? There are all these things that we can follow after. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, number one, what are we following? What are we following? Is it in and of itself uh, sinful? If it is, then of course we need to repent and turn from it. But another question we have to ask, suppose that something is not in and of itself uh, utterly sinful. Maybe it's something that could be used for good, but, but could be used for bad. Another question we have to ask is, how closely am I following? Have I followed, like the children of Israel, right into idolatry? Is there something out there that has caught my interest, that has grasped my heart in a way that it's taking away from what ought to be given to the Lord? So what am I following and how closely am I following? The term is very, very uh, popular nowadays, to follow after. And so I just uh, throw that out as we begin, uh, just as a little thought and consideration. What are you following? What am I following? Have I followed such a thing to the point of bowing the knee? That's what it says the children of Israel did. They followed after other gods. They forsook the Lord God. And they followed to such a point that they bowed the knee. And so we ought to consider what we are following. Now, uh, having said that, I want to turn uh, from the children of Israel as a whole uh, to Samson. Well, first... Uh, Let's just read the first verse of Judges 13 again. I know we already read this, but it was about five or six weeks ago. It says this in Judges 13.1 again. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And at this point, I just want to open in a word of prayer. Just ask the Lord to, uh, to guide us as we consider this. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look into your word today. I want to thank you for these Old Testament examples, these, these historical stories that are put there as examples for us. Help us to learn from it today, as you've asked us to in, in the New Testament. Help us to be able to look back and to rightly divide the word of truth. Oh God, we don't want to stretch things that are not there, but we certainly want to learn from the lessons uh, that we can see here. And so we ask your help uh, and guidance, and we pray that again what's done here uh, today would be done for your honor and glory. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So that's just to set the stage. Again, the children of Israel have rebelled again, and so they're going to enter a time of retribution and, uh, before the cycle goes on. Okay. Now, uh, I want to give uh, Judges 13 to 16. Okay, This is what we're considering. Four chapters. Four chapters to de- devoted to the life of this man, Samson. And I, before I go into the points of what I think we can take from it, I want to just give a little overview because it's four chapters is a lot to cover in a day. So I want to give a little bit of an overview before we go into uh, the, the points, the things that the Lord has laid on my heart uh, and that I want to pass on to you. The question we could ask in these four chapters, where and how do we find this man? Where and how do we find him? Well... In chapter 13, and I hope you can read that well, you could say that we find Samson called by God and brought into the world. Samson had a unique calling, as we're going to see. I mentioned it just briefly this morning. The angel of the Lord visits his parents. We've already considered this, I know. And the angel of the Lord says, you're going to bring forth a son. From the barren womb, life is going to come. You're going to bring forth a son. And he's going to begin to deliver the children of Israel from, from the Philistines. So in chapter 13, 
we find him called by God and brought into the world. Uh, Just at the end of chapter 13, we'll just read that verse again. It says in verse 24, So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Manahadan between Zorah and Eshtal. You could say, as we consider chapter 13, such a future, such a future. As we look at uh, uh, the way that Samson's brought into the world, we look at him, we're going to consider he was given godly parents, he was given a specific calling, you could see the Spirit of the Lord moving upon him, such a future uh, in chapter 13. And then chapter 14, immediately we find Samson drawn by a woman and shamed by a riddle. Of course, there's other things in there. This is just an outline. But uh, as an overview, drawn by a woman and shamed by a riddle. And to that we could say, such a fool. Samson, how could you? I mean, God had called you. He gave you a specific purpose. He gave you godly parents. He's given you supernatural strength. But we find him drawn by a woman and shamed by a riddle. Such a fool, you could say. Then in chapter 15, we find him incensed by his circumstances and at war with the Philistines. And you could say such a fury. When you look at Samson in chapter, Judges chapter 15, and you see the way that he retaliated uh, toward these Philistines. Now, we have to be careful with Samson because in some of what appear to be Samson's failures, and some of them certainly were failures, but even in some of his retaliation toward the Philistines, I'm not sure that it was done exactly the way that God had intended it to be done, but God still worked through it, and we're going to see that. So I want to be careful about how I present it. Samson, uh, he had, an, it seems, an unbelievable temper. Of course, God gave him supernatural strength, and he did supernatural feats as he used it against the Philistines. And some of it, we would question how he went about it, but God used it. God in his sovereignty used it to begin to deliver the Philistines, which is exactly what he said in chapter 13. Such a fury. Chapter 16, this is the final chapter dealing with Samson. We find him enticed by his wife and enslaved by the enemy. And to that we could say such a failure. Now again, I'm careful because God used Samson, but we see just an immense amount of failure in his life. And I want to, we want to look back on it. That's my hope. We want to uh, understand what was there and we want to learn from it. How can we apply it to us? Okay, so uh, such a failure. Now, um, there's just one other way that you could kind of just to give, a, again, a good idea of kind of what we're dealing with in these four chapters It was an entrance for Samson characterized by blessing and sanctification. Samson was called by God. He was was given the calling as a Nazarite. He was going to be set apart, sanctified for God's purposes. A a tremendously uh, blessed entrance into the world. We just read it at the end of chapter 13 as God blessed him. An entrance characterized by blessing and uh, sanctification. But an existence characterized by blunder and retaliation. We see the way that he responded. We see his foolish decisions. We see things where, I mean, at times we just, uh, I know I did, you just, just scratch your head and you think, Samson, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Now, we know from Hebrews 11 that uh, he uh, is, is placed into the hall of faith, what we like to call it. Uh, so we trust that we're going to see him in heaven one day. So I don't want to be too critical, especially since he's Samson. But, uh, but we still want to look back and we want to consider 
what, what took place. We see just a tremendous amount of blunder, foolish decisions, disobedient choices, and so forth, an existence characterized by blunder and retaliation, an exit, unfortunately, characterized by bondage and humiliation. Again, God uses this to accomplish his purposes, and that's one of the beautiful things we see with Samson. One of the, one of the points that the Lord has impressed on me, amidst Samson's failures... Amidst his disobedient choices, amidst his foolishness, God carried out his sovereign purposes. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Samson broke every one of the Nazarite vows. God said, you're going to be called as a Nazarite from the beginning. You're not to cut your hair. You're not to drink alcohol. You're not to associate with dead things. Samson, we're going to see, breaks every one of those. But God still uses it. I, I mean, I'm, I am tremendously encouraged. Because when we look at a world filled with sinfulness and wickedness, we look at the failures of men, we look at this failure sometimes of churches, we look at failures in our own life. But we can rest assured because God is faithful even though we fail. And so what God said he was going to do in beginning the deliverance, God did exactly that even though Samson, uh, in a sense, made a mess of a lot of things in his life. So uh, that is just a little bit of an overview. Okay, I don't want to confuse you now. That's just an overview. Now we're going to move on to an outline with some points. Okay, point number one has to do with Samson's choices. Samson's choices. I've already mentioned uh, some of uh, some of the things. Chapter thirteen. It says the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Uh, the verse before that says, the Lord blessed him. What an entrance. But then listen to these words in chapter 14, verse 1. Now, Samson went down. Samson went down. Now, uh, it's illustrative, I think, of, in a sense, the rest of his life. Sorry to say. Samson went down. Here the Lord was doing something marvelous. The Lord was working on him. The Lord was working with him. The Lord was, was blessing him. But Samson made a choice. The choice was to go down. And that characterizes a lot of, of Samson's life. At the beginning of his life, you could look at chapter 13, and I've already mentioned it. What promise, such a future before him. What God may do with this man. But then you fast forward to the end of his life, and I'm not totally skipping ahead. We're going to go back over some of this. This is just how the Lord kind of laid it out for me. At the end of his life, it says this in chapter 16, verse 21. The Philistines took him, that's Samson. They plucked out his eyes. They put out his eyes. They blinded him. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison, in their prison. What promise in chapter 13, in chapter 16, you could say, what happened? What happened to this man? Such promise, God was working on him, given him godly parents, blessed him in such a way. And here at the end of his life, eyes plucked out in bondage to the enemy. I mean, a picture, no doubt for us, right? Bondage to the enemy, and we'll consider that a little bit. Grinding in their prison. What a shameful place to be. What promise. But then what happened? Do you look at sometimes your own life, and do I look at my own life at times, and I see times where I see uh, what the Lord was doing, and I see failure. What happened? 
I'm sure you can look at others as well and you could say the same thing. Children brought up in godly homes, the Lord working in their life at an early age, and then you fast forward some years and you say, what happened? Well, what happened with Samson is pretty obvious. It's chapter 14 and 15 and the first part of 16. It's Samson's choices. Samson's choices. And so what's the point? Well, the point is this. Before Samson was enslaved by the enemy, he freely chose to go down. Before he found himself in bondage to the enemy, he freely chose to go down. And I just throw the word freely in because bondage is, ensla- is, is to be enslaved, right? At that point, he had uh, limited choices. But back at the beginning, he had plenty of choices, And before he found himself in bondage, he freely chose to go down. It says he went down and he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. What kind of a what kind of a request? He just saw her. That's all we know at this point. He just saw her. I think some of us men think we could pick a woman like that, right? We just see a beautiful woman and say, okay, there she is. What foolishness. What foolishness. And so his parents actually plead with him. This is one of the ways we know his parents were godly people. And I'm going to mention this again a little bit later. It's important to know that. Godly people. They were sacrificing to the Lord in chapter 13, communing with the Lord in chapter 13. Here they're pleading with Samson. They say in verse 3, His father says, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. What a terrible, terrible decision. What a terrible perspective. A father pleading with him and Samson's response. Tony Martin mentioned last week, it's possible, and you look at a response like that, I wonder if they said no to him very often when he was growing up. I don't know. We don't know. It's just speculation. But with such a a brash and bold response, get her for me. No response to his father's concern. Just get her for me, for she pleases pleases me well. Poor, poor choices. Now, Samson chose basically to... Embrace at least with one arm the enemy. He chose with one arm to embrace the enemy. He was going to take a Philistine woman for his wife, even though his parents asked him not to and pled with him, it sounds. Yet Samson was called to a life of separation. God had given him, said, from the womb, you're going to be called to be a Nazarite. There's a separation there, a consecration that Samson was going to be used. God had intended him to be used. You could say God's will was for Samson to be used as a consecrated vessel for the master's use. He was called to separation, but he chose to go and at least with one arm, you could say, embrace uh, the enemy, embrace the Philistines We as believers are called, aren't we, in the same way to a life of separation and consecration. I mean, the picture is very clear. We've been called to be sanctified, that is to be set apart, to be separate from the world. Not to love the world, but to love God. 
not to follow after the world, but to follow after God. We've been called, just like Samson, sanctified to be set apart for the master's use. And what a privilege, isn't it? Do you look out at the world sometimes? Do you look at, and I know that we still have the flesh. Trust me, I still have the flesh. And so there's always that flesh that yearns for sinful desires. There's always that flesh that is warring against the spirit, Romans 7 says. There's a a, a conflict going on. But when you're sitting there, especially when you're sitting there before the word of God, in some measure of holiness, and you think about the destruction of sin. We're going to see it in Samson's life. I've already mentioned it. When you think about the destruction of sin, the Bible's clear. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Destruction. Are you not so glad that God has called you out of that? Aren't you so glad that God has called you out of the raucous parties and the the debauchery and all of the filth of the world? I mean, have you talked to someone who's steeped in that? I know that they have the flesh and we have the flesh and there's a part of them that loves that. But there's a part that just knows the vileness of such a life. And especially we as believers with the Spirit of God within us, are you not so glad that God has called you out of a life of sin and destruction? That's what sin leads to. And so Samson was called to be sanctified. Very interesting to think, and we're going to see as Samson goes to war with the Philistines, it's almost as if with one arm Samson took and embraced the enemy, while with the other arm he tried to throw blows at the enemy. And again, God still used it to accomplish his purpose. But here he was, Samson said, believe it or not, I want to marry their women, but I'm going to kill their men. I'm I'm going to take for myself women from their people. But I'm also going to be at war with their men. I think the picture is clear, isn't it? Friendship with the world, enmity with God. Do we think we can have one foot step so deep into the world and with another foot or with another part of our body at war with what's going on out there? Do we dare think that? We can see with Samson what happened. Number one, not only is it adultery toward God, and that's what James chapter 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So not only is it adultery toward God, but it's a, a life that leads to destruction. Destruction. That's what sin is. I'm not saying there's no pleasure in it. We have the flesh. There's a passing pleasure of sin. That's what Hebrews 11 says about Moses. He chose rather, rather than than to choose the passing pleasures of sin for a season, he chose to suffer with God's people. And so we're called to separation. Now, I do want to make one point. It's 1 John 2.15 that says, Do not love the world. Do not love the world. But one thing I want to make very clear. The world, well, let me say it this way. You ever thought about this? 1 John 2.15, love not the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. There has to be a difference, right? There has to be a difference because we're commanded not to love the world, but then the Bible says God so loved the world. I think it could be said this way and supported very well from Scripture. We're not to love the world's philosophies, but we're to love the world's people. We're not to love the world's systems, but we're to love the world's souls. 
There is a, a, a love that we should have. We're not at war with the people out there. And I think I mention this because I think I've had this wrong at times. We're not at war with the people out there. We're at war with the systems of the world, with the God of this world, with the way that he takes what God has given and he distorts it and he turns it. That's what we're at war with. We're at war with the sin, the, 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 again, the debauchery, all, the ter- all of that, uh, uh, the philosophies of the world, uh, all of the things that Satan, the enemy, the God of the world, has put out there that are so anti what God is, who God is, and what God has established for his people. So I just want to make that clear. We're not at war with the people out there. We're to love the people out there. We love their souls. We read throughout the New Testament of, you think of Paul in Acts 17. He comes into a city. He sees the idolatry. It says his spirit was provoked. Provoked. Not to hatred toward them, but provoked toward uh, 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 this feeling of... of, um, the word's not coming, but he felt bad for them. He, he, you're looking at idolatry and you're saying these people are so far. We ought to love the souls of the world, but hate the systems of the world. We can't follow after the world's philosophies. Throughout the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is seen having compassion. And we don't have time to go through the scriptures, but it's very clear when the Lord Jesus looks out on the lost sheep of the world, he has compassion on them. In fact, one of the passages says that, isn't it? They were as sheep without a shepherd. It provoked the heart of the Lord as he looked on the people of the world. And so I just want to be clear that although we cannot cannot be in friendship with the world, doesn't mean we can't be friends with the people of the world. But we are not to be, uh, in that sense, engaged in the world's philosophies, the world's systems, the world's ideologies. Okay? So anyway, Samson... Uh, he thought, I guess in a sense, he could do both. With one arm, he would embrace the Philistine women. With the other arm, he would throw blows. And of course, we already know the end of the story. It didn't work out very well. One of the things you'll note from Samson is that not only did he choose to do things that he ought not do, he also chose not to do things that he ought to do. So we often find this in scripture, right? Some preachers have said the sins of omission, when we don't do the things we ought to do, and the sins of commission, when we do the things we ought not do. Well, that's very evident in Samson's life. It's very clear to see the way that Samson went about uh, choosing things that were contrary to God's commands. Clearly. But we also find, if you will, a conspicuous absence of things that perhaps you would want to find in the life of a godly believer. Where is the communion with the Lord? Never a sacrifice mentioned. Samson has two prayers that he prays. And I think it's worthwhile just to kind of take a brief look at them. Chapter 15, after the Lord gives Samson this tremendous victory with the jawbone of a donkey, Samson says in verse 16 of 15, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. There was Samson in all of his might and power, which was the Lord, no doubt. You could say uh, uh, the Lord was his strength. The hair was just a symbol. The Lord was his strength. He slays a thousand men there. In probably 
maybe one of the most manly scenes you could ever have, a movie-like type scene, one man slaying a thousand men with this weak vessel, the jawbone of a donkey. And so he says, I have slain a thousand men. And it was when he had finished speaking, he threw down the jawbone from his hand and he called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. Interesting how the Lord did that, huh? I have slain a thousand men. And then he becomes thirsty to the point where he thinks he's going to die. And so he cries out to the Lord and says, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? That's one of Samson's prayers. Not as commendable as you might like to find in the life of someone leading the Lord's people. And the only other prayer we find in Samson's life, and again, I'm just considering some of the things that you may have hoped to find in the life of one of the Lord's leaders. The only other prayer is when he's bound and blinded and grinding out uh, uh, in the, the prisons of the enemy. He says in 16 and verse 28, Then Samson called out to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even there in that final prayer, I suppose there are different ways you could look at it. We can acknowledge that at least Samson cried out to the Lord at that time. But even in that prayer, he says, for the sake of my two eyes, not for the sake of the Lord's people, not for the sake of the Lord's glory, but for the sake of my two eyes. And so those are the only two prayers that we find uh, in Samson's life. And so I just ask, where are the things that he ought to do? We can see he chose to do things he ought not do. Where are the things that he should be doing? Where are the sacrifices? Where is the fellowship? I mean, think about this, right? And this is a, a key point. Samson was called to sanctification. You and I are too, but we're not called to isolation. Yet in Samson's life, we see time and time again him at war with the enemies all by himself. We don't see really any fellowship. His only fellowship is with the Philistine women. That's his closest communion, it seems like. Separation, sanctification, yes. I'm going to be set apart for the master's use, but not isolation. Certainly not isolation from one another. Not we as believers are being called to. We're to be in fellowship with one another. We're to be using one another, building one another. I mean, the New Testament is filled with it. Filled with encouraging one another, challenging one another. Uh, Philippians uh, uh, 2, uh, in regarding humility, you know, and we're dwelling with one another, and so forth and so on. But Samson lived a life, it appears, of isolation. He seemed to kind of have it, have it backwards in a sense. The things he ought to be separate from, he wasn't. But then he was oftentimes isolated. Okay, we're going to just move on. And so I hope that the point is clear. What's the application? Be challenged, brothers and sisters. Mike, be challenged. Your choices have real consequences. It's very simple. It's just a little lesson from Samson. Point number two, and I only have three points, and we'll hurry through them. The second point has to do not with Samson so much, Samson's choices, but with God's calling. God's calling. And I've kind of already mentioned this, but I find it extremely encouraging to see that God had called Samson in such a way for such a purpose. I'm glad to see that God's purposes did not predetermine Samson's choices. Samson chose what Samson wanted to do. I'm glad to know that God uh, did not force him into doing things. God had a will for his life, you could say, the, the, the life of a Nazarite. Samson broke all three of the commands. 
I'm glad to know that God's sovereignty did not demand for Samson to make choices. But I'm also glad to know that God's sovereignty is such that amidst all of the failures of Samson, his purposes would still be fulfilled. At the very end of his life, Samson in his final act breaks down the, the, the pagan temple and with it thousands of Philistine people. God said in chapter 13 he's going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines and that's exactly what God did. Amidst the failures, amidst the disobedience, amidst the poor choices. And so I'm glad to know that we're not robots. I'm glad to know that, uh, uh, as it may seem sometimes from some, that we're pawns. You and I have the ability, in that sense, to freely make choices to serve the living God or to serve mammon, to serve the world. We, we freely make those choices in and out, don't we? Are you ever forced? And so Samson was not forced into doing what he did, but I'm so glad to know that amidst all of his failures, God's sovereign purpose... God's sovereign calling to begin to deliver the Philistines uh, did come to pass. And so we are called uh, to a life of usefulness. We just, we just heard about that for several sessions, a life of usefulness. We can choose to be useful for God. Though man may fail, God remains faithful. Praise the Lord. Okay. So uh, point number two. Samson's foolish and often disobedient choices did not stop God's sovereign purposes. Praise the Lord. What's the application? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Number one, be challenged. Number two, be encouraged. God's plan marches on amidst everything we see around us, including man's failures. Do you look out at the world at times and you look at all of the unbelievable atrocities going on and become a bit discouraged? I know I do. You look out at times and you see just unbelievable sin and filth and disgust. Even at times you see failure amongst the Lord's people. I know I see in my own life failure. Isn't it good to know that the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail? Isn't it good to know that we're on his side and he's going to carry out his purposes amidst the failures of man? When we look out on terrorism and all of this just horrible, horrible atrocities, isn't it good to know that we're on his team? If God be for us, who can stand against us? And so I'm encouraged by God's calling as we see it in Samson's life. Now we're going to move on right by that. And of course there's more that could be said, but uh, this really was something that the Lord laid heavy upon me. Sin's cost. Sin's cost. And we're going to close with this. What's the point? Samson lost everything in a very real sense at the hands of sin and disobedience. Samson lost everything in a very real sense. Samson had been given godly parents. He had been given a godly people or at least a people group that he could associate with. He had been given an identity, an Israelite, a Nazarite. He had been given a purpose he had been called, he had been given supernatural strength. Samson had been given much. But Samson lost in a very real sense, I hesitate on the word everything, but in a very real sense, Samson lost everything, at least in his life. He lost it all at the hands of sin and disobedience. Many have commented on the end of Samson's life, the binding 
and blinding and grinding effect of sin. The binding and blinding and grinding effect of sin. It's a warning to us. A warning. Be warned. Sin and disobedience will cost you much, will cost me much. It's a warning because, of course, we've already mentioned we have the flesh still at war with the spirit. And so often, so, so oftentimes we're drawn to this world. First uh, John 2, 15 and 16 again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's what's in the world. And we're drawn to that so deeply. But sin has a re- very, very real cost. There's a price to be paid for serving sin. You will suffer a loss at the hands of the slave master. All that Samson was given in chapter 13. Chapter 14, we find that he loses a bet. Chapter 15, we find he loses his wife. Chapter 16, the last chapter, we find he loses many things. His judgment, his integrity, his patience, his hair, his strength, his eyes, his freedom, his dignity, and two more. He lost the presence of the Lord, and then ultimately he lost his life, all because of choices to follow after the world, to follow after sin, to disobey God's command. You could say, as Samson was there at the end of his life, and he gave that final prayer, Oh God, just one more time, give me strength. And the Lord, the Lord gave him the strength to do what he did. You could say in a real sense that Samson was willing to give his life, in a sense, for the Lord and the Lord's purposes, but he never was able to live his life for the Lord and the Lord's purposes. Samson, in that final act, I don't want to take all credit from him. His prayer is a little odd for the sake of my two eyes. But he does say, I'll die with the Philistine people, and he crashes the temple down. He was willing to lay down his life, in a sense, to die for the, for the Lord, for the Lord's purposes, for the Lord's people. But he could not ever successfully live for the Lord, for the Lord's purposes, for the Lord's people. And I think there's a real lesson for us um, in many ways, of course, we have to ask ourselves. Many times we say, well, I would die for the Lord. But the question really is, are you living for the Lord? Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. We're not so much called in Scripture. I'm not saying we'll never be confronted with that. And, of course, we hold Christian martyrs in extremely high regard, no doubt. No doubt. But the command from Scripture, the commands in the New Testament are filled not with going out and suicide bombing, but self-sacrifice, giving your life on a daily basis for the Lord, for the Lord's purposes, for the Lord's people. I have a challenge for husbands, and I, I aim this at myself. Sometimes we like to say in our manliness, well, I would die for my wife but the question really is from Scripture, are you living for your wife in a godly way as you ought to be? Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians chapter 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, are you living a life such that in a self-sacrificial way, that's what we're called to. 
to lay down our lives, yes, but in a daily way, in a daily self-sacrifice to, to put off what's out there, to put off the world and all of its, all of its glit and glamour and all of its pleasures, to put it off in a way to serve one another, to serve our wives and for our children as well. A lot of us, moms, dads, hey, I would give my life for my kids. But in a godly way, are you giving your life for your kids as you ought to be? Or does TV programs and sports and fashion and politics and money take precedence over what you ought to be laying down to invest into them? It's just a practical application. And so Samson uh, presents that for us. A life not lived well for the Lord, but there at the end he he dies. And so uh, we ask ourselves the question, am I living a life of self-sacrifice for the Lord's purposes, the Lord's people? One final thought. <clears throat> One final thought from the passages. Not only the scriptures are clear, not only, and I want to make sure that this is a balanced point, not only can we or will we suffer loss at the hands of sin and disobedience, but sometimes we're going to suffer loss at the hands of obedience. When we give to the Lord what we ought to, I think of a man like Joseph. He found himself in bondage as well, just like Samson. He found himself a slave, just like Samson, in a lot of ways. But he found himself in that place because of obedience, not disobedience. He found himself in that place because of holiness, not sin. Remember, started with, uh, in a sense, with Potiphar's wife. Well, of course, his brothers and all that. But when he ended up in prison, he stood for holiness. And he still ended up in a place with much loss, suffering loss. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. There are many, many illustrations. But you want to know something that you'll never lose when you suffer loss because of obedience? The presence of the Lord. It says about Samson in Judges 16, verse 19, She, that was Delilah, lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him and his strength left him. She said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and I will shake myself free. What a statement of self-sufficiency. What a statement of independence from the Creator God says this, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Now certainly we understand from the scriptures that we're not going to lose our salvation because of sin and disobedience. It's pretty clear in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? However, 1 John 1 says, to those who say they can walk in darkness, I want to make sure I get this right, 1 John 1, 6, I know many of you are already there and probably could quote it better than I. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. One of the things that you will lose at the hands of disobedience and, and sin is fellowship with the Almighty God. 
that which Christ has done uh, in order to bring us into relationship with him. That beautiful fellowship and companionship we can have. But you want to know what it says about Joseph so many times over? Amidst all of his loss, you already know it. But the Lord was with him. But the Lord was with him. But the Lord was with him. Repeats it over and over again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood there in the fires. But there was a fourth person there, wasn't there? The Lord was with them. Daniel was dropped into the lion's den. But there was an angel there with him. Suppose the angel of the Lord. But it doesn't always end well, does it? doesn't always end well when we suffer loss because of sin and disobedience. The scriptures make that clear. God forbid we think we're always going to be saved from the fire. I think of Stephen. I think it's Acts chapter 7. Being stoned there because of his testimony to those uh, 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 rebellious religious people. Being stoned to death. Wasn't saved from it. But it does tell us that he looked up into heaven and there he saw the Lord Jesus standing at God's right hand. The presence of God. Maybe, may we be willing to suffer loss of nothing because of sin and disobedience. But may we be willing to, to suffer the loss of anything and everything because of obedience and righteousness and holiness and following God's commands. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the tremendous truth therein. We thank you even for your, your command in the New Testament to look back at the Old Testament and consider the examples there and to learn from them. And we do trust, O oh God, that we can learn from this example of Samson. O oh God, you know I don't want to be too critical because I see a lot of the same failures in my life. But help us, O oh Lord, to learn from him. Help us, O oh Lord, to go out from this place with a renewed desire to obey your commands to make choices that are honoring and pleasing to you, to not go down a path of sin and disobedience and unrighteousness. Help us, O God. We do thank you. We thank you for the fact that not only have you given us good reason to live a life of obedience, but you've given us all the resources, O God, and we thank you for that. You've given us your Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus lives in us. What a wonder. You've given us the ability to live a life of holiness for you. And, of course, we thank you, O God for the forgiveness of sins. We understand that at times we fail and we thank you for the ability to confess our sins knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh God, we give you our thanks. We ask your blessing today on on us as we part. Help us as an assembly to grow uh, individually and corporately to be more like the Lord Jesus in, in, in every way. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.